in this country from Silicon Valley to aerospace. A lot of the pharmaceutical industry came out of R&D that the capitalists didn't want to invest in. What are we waiting for? That's Ralph Nader, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Ralph Nader on What Are We Waiting For? Inertia. We all experience it. It can lead to despair, and despair can lead to paralysis. And that's just where the oligarchs and plutocrats want us to be, keeping the focus away from their destructive policies. Many of us have resources and privileges, but don't use them. The attitude is, if something's wrong, let someone else deal with it. But throughout history, small groups of organized people have fought against and overcome many difficult obstacles, such as patriarchy, misogyny, homophobia, and racism, to make progress. That didn't happen by wishing them away, but by articulating what the problems were and formulating solutions. The multiple crises we face today demand action. Are we supposed to sit back and ignore what's going on? What are we waiting for? Our guest today is Ralph Nader, a legendary figure who has spent a lifetime fighting on behalf of ordinary people. The Atlantic magazine named him one of the hundred most influential figures in U.S. history. I talked with him at the end of December. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Well, how do you see things in the nation's capital uh, today? Have you ever seen anything comparable in terms of the vitriolic rhetoric, the threats of violence, the actual violence, the incivility, and the ever-present political gridlock? Well, a great deal of it is due to the differential in energy and intensity levels between the Republicans and the Democrats. I've never seen such a differential. A lot of what the Republicans are getting away with and pushing through and blocking over the last few years is due to the default of the Democrats. They uh, just don't have the drive. The January 6th committee that's investigating has been extremely reluctant to subpoena the two top witnesses, Trump and Pence. Let's get down to the nitty-gritty here. Why haven't the Democrats been able to save the republic from the worst, cruelest, most vicious, oligarchic, plutocratic, warmongering, Wall Street indentured Republican Party. That's the issue. The Republican Party is not the party of Robert Taft and Dwight Eisenhower. It's been hijacked by a determined collaborative of oligarchs who have, in addition to the Wall Street agenda that they service, their own political agenda to crush certain stratas of voting, like the voter suppression, the bills that are being passed in Texas and Florida, to basically separate more and more Americans from reality. That's being seen now in the disputes over the pandemic, to strip any kind of educational function that has critical capacity. They create these things like uh, critical race theory, these various mythologies that flow through their media like lightning. And, of course, they premised on any election they lose is because it's stolen, which is the ultimate characteristic of a small core of oligarchs servicing the super wealthy, deregulation, tax cuts, uh, all kinds of other goodies, bailouts, while they pursue their own Koch brother type agendas. So we have to recognize something very important here. The major issue in this country is the merger of the plutocrats with the emerging oligarchs. The plutocrats ruled by the wealthy oligarchs, a small core political power brokers. And underneath all is the inundation of our political economy by corporatism. And what do you hear in the liberal circles? You hear about racism. You hear about sexism. You don't hear that corporatism, starting with slavery, has caused 
so much of the racism and the sexism because it's to the pecuniary profitable advantage of corporatism to do so. You never hear that kind of analysis. And the best of the liberal media is what I call plight media. They will focus on the horrible bondage of student loans or the poverty of people being evicted from their homes or the inadequate health care system for an emergency situation with a family. But they will neither go to the remedy, like full Medicare for all, like tuition-free education like Western Europe has, nor will they go into the causes to analyze this. If you hear all the press talk about disproportionate effects on minorities, well, list them. One is housing. Who is producing the disproportionate effect in housing on minorities? You have the redlining by banks and insurance companies, which doom whole areas of cities to deterioration. You can't get loans. You can't get insurance. Everything else deteriorates. Well, how about employment? Who caused minorities to be lesser paid than white workers? It's, again, commercial advantage. Health care. The poor are denied more health care, and they're given lower-grade health care. Who is engaged in disparities between women and men working the same job? It may be up to 70, 75% of what men get now. That's been the traditional sexism of corporations because they know they can get away with it. They know what the path of least resistance is. So you go into area after area, disproportionate effect on minorities in transportation because they often can't afford cars to go from the inner city to suburbs to clean houses, for example, or to be uh, nannies. So they have to use mass transit, which, of course, is, is massively disinvested in compared to highways and motor vehicles. So what really is so upsetting is the focus of progressive reform thought is not on corporate supremacy corporate crime waves, corporate welfare, corporate coercion. When you sign those fine print contracts, you give up your rights, even your rights to go to court if you're wrongfully injured. It's what I call contract servitude, contract peonage. But that was one of the great pillars of freedom that came out of medieval England. It was the freedom of contract. You entered into negotiation, and if you didn't see that your terms were being met, you could pull back, or if the terms were being met, you sign it between buyer and seller, for example. That's gone now. The other pillar that's subject to corporate coercion is the law of wrongful injury, tort law. And for 40 years now, the insurance industry and the tort deformers, the big corporations that don't want to be held responsible for their negligent deaths and disease and trauma and property destruction, they have been reducing the access to the courts and trial by jury, all kinds of other technical obstacles developed by the corporate law firms that almost get no investigative journalism. They're the brains, they're the brokers, they're the ones who when the corporations say, can we get away with this? They say, don't worry, boss. We'll show you the way. We'll show you how to engage in tax evasion or flee to the jurisdiction to tax havens abroad. So hollowing out communities and all the trauma to the families because the corporations decided that Mississippi wasn't a low enough wage state and it had a floor called the federal minimum wage. So what they do? They went big time to the lowest wages of all, China, exporting millions of jobs, crushing down values of property held by workers, all kinds of unemployment leading to addictions and other traumas, family after family. And over in China, what they have is something more advantageous than slavery. If the corporations had slaves they have to at least feed them and give them some sort of shelter so they could work the next day for nothing. But in China, 
They were paying $2 to $5 a day, a little bit more now, and they didn't have to pay for their food or their shelter. So they, they escaped U.S. jurisdiction, transferred millions of jobs to communist and fascist dictatorships, shipped them back here for maximum profits, and, and made liberals call what they were doing free trade. Liberals adopting the language of the adversary. Healthcare vendors and all their greed, like the drug industry and what the hospital chains charge, they call them providers. The bottom line, David, is it's all about the giant corporations, and it's all about recapturing Congress, which is the only powerful institution under our Constitution that can counteract these corporations, subordinate them, break them up, tax them, prosecute them by the kind of legislation and budgets they mandate on the executive branch and by the kind of judges that they decide to confirm or refuse to confirm. Why in the world the jargon of the liberal progressives wallowing with the language of the adversary and allowing themselves never to go into the causes of the oppression on the ground is something for alternative radio to probe evermore. Indeed. T.S. Eliot wrote in uh, Four Quartets something along the lines that you're suggesting. He said, we are distracted from distraction by distraction. And for years you've been talking about the attention to and focus on trivia and how the media, the corporate media, drive that. This divorce, this scandal, uh, this murder, etc. It's worse than that. It's now social media trivia, which is 24-7. These corporations are raising our children. Years ago, they would direct sell kids junk food, junk drink, violent programming on Saturdays, uh, circumventing parental authority and discipline. Now they're much more penetrating. Now they, they deal with the construction of childhood narcissism, fear, anxiety, gossip, and uh, they're drawing these children away from their family into virtual reality, four hours, six hours, seven, eight hours a day. And now we have Mark Zuckerberg coming who's like an idiot savant. You know, he, he knows how to make billions of dollars for himself. But he now wants to move more and more of the people in this world into the metaverse. What is the metaverse? The metaverse is his playground where he can get all kinds of personal information, sell it to advertisers, and continue apologizing in front of congressional committees and never changing what he's doing. The problem is we do not have robust ethical and legal frameworks to keep up with corporate predators, to keep up with the way these corporations command labor, capital, and technology. Why don't we have those? Why don't we have that security? One is the academic world is in their own silos. And... Um, it's very, very difficult why we don't have at least 1% or 2% of the professoria uh, be outspoken, mobilized. They used to mobilize like Professor Barry Commoner at Queens College in New York against the nuclear arms race. And they were a major force in getting the moratorium on atomic bomb testing with the Soviet Union. Where are they now? The Obama administration okayed over a trillion dollars to upgrade our nuclear weapons. Imagine a trillion dollars to upgrade weapons that already are numerous enough to blow up the world 300 times. So you, you, you hit on an interesting point. Look at all the countervailing forces to defend our democracy. The voting uh, situation is well known now for being undermined, sabotaged, in a very discriminatory fashion, ever getting more sophisticated and more muscular, more defiant, more supported by right-wing courts, gerrymandering. The Democrats cannot catch up with the Republicans, even in gerrymandering. 
another countervailing is the legal profession. We had a president who violated more laws than you could count, and he did it openly, brazenly. He wasn't Trump. So the legal profession has failed miserably. We can't get the American Bar Association to stand up for the rule of law. They know very well that the White House is a lawless serial violator under both parties. If we can't rely on the legal profession to stand up for constitutional government, for the rule of law by the politicians, we're in deep trouble, as we are now. You recently had uh, Noam Chomsky on your radio program, the Ralph Nader uh, Radio Hour, and you posed the question to him, but I I felt that you you were expressing some real frustration. Uh, You said, it's quite clear that exposés, disclosures, historical analysis are not prodding people to action on the ground. And we're seeing the trends going in the wrong direction with American fascism on the rise and Trumpism. How do you deal with that? Well, it is true. We we live in a golden age of expose documentaries, or just marvelous documentaries on corporate crime, abuses, environment, labor, empire overseas, uh, tax uh, evasions, uh, just endless. And the same for books. Dozens of muckraking books on one company in one industry after another, and nothing happened. And in the 60s, when Silent Spring came out, Unsafe at Any Speed came out, The Other America on Poverty by Michael Harrington came out, they put forces into motion. We got legislation. We got programs. We got safety standards. We got the emergence of environmental agencies in in Washington. And what does that tell us? That tells us that our society has decayed to an extreme in terms of the concentration of power of the few uh, against the many. So, in other words, the, the outrage coming from the public is much more difficult to stoke these days, other than, you know, being upset about politically incorrect talk. So we don't have measurements to, uh, to determine how our society deteriorates politically and, and democratically. And so every year it gets worse and worse. Uh, and it's like a rubber band being stretched. No problem. Look at that. Good rubber band stretches another two inches, stretches, and then suddenly it snaps. Well, with Trump, it snapped. And what's coming next? If the Democrats don't start having a ground game and get out many millions more voters and provide voters with reasons to voting for them, they don't even know how to toot what horn they have. The Democrats, uh, they're into their own silos. They are imprisoned by a half a dozen major political consulting firms who are conflicted to the core because they represent corporate clients as well between elections. And the Democratic National Committee proceeds never to look itself in the mirror and learn from its past failures and mistakes. So what are we to do now? We have a two-party duopoly. They'll never let a third party get a foothold. We know all about that. And so if we're going to avoid American fascism and settle for a less vicious corporate state, there's going to have to be a third force to get 10, 15 million non-voters out who wouldn't otherwise have voted in 2022 in several of the swing states. Otherwise, the oligarchy of Trump moves in and connects with the plutocracy of Wall Street and the military-industrial complex. Look at the situation we're in. We don't have enough virus test kits. There's a lot of protective equipment. We still don't have enough. Yet... Democrat and Republican senators just gave the Pentagon $24 billion more dollars than the Pentagon asked for. Just think of that. $24 billion, with a B, than the Pentagon asked for. And only seven Democrats and three Republicans voted against it. Ninety out of 100 senators voted for more empire, more military-industrial complex, more waste, fraud, and corruption, more devouring of our necessities at home by this distorted public budget in Washington, D.C. 
So what's the way out? It's Congress, it's Congress, it's Congress. There's 535 of them. We know their names, unlike the bureaucracy or the judges. We know we outnumber them. We know there's nothing back home that makes them very fearful. They have safe seats, and they don't get primaried very often. And they're taking money from the same check writers, Democrats, Republicans. Now, you think somebody would talk about this? Yeah, I've talked about it on presidential campaigns. I've talked about it in civic forums. You know what the reaction is? The reaction is, what are you going to do about school prayer? What are you going to do about this and that? They can't think systemically. They can't think fundamentally. And these are learned people. These are people who read newspapers, who think, who read books. The so-called intelligentsia. That's what the problem is. These are the liberals and progressives who meet around restaurant tables, and they twist the tail of the cosmos, and they predict and diagnose and bewail And by the time dessert is completed, they haven't met the remedy. They haven't talked about proposals, changes, reforms. They will bewail voter suppression. But they won't say, why don't we have universal voting as a duty? Instead of all these horrible things that are happening to people, denial of health care, bad health care, deductibles, co-pays, overbilling, gouging, so-called surprise billing, which is like criminal billing, trapped in networks of, of, of doctors and hospitals, the corporatization of Medicare, 40% of all elderly beneficiaries are now been pushed into Medicare disadvantage, which is run by the insurance companies, like corporate insurance. And uh, instead of saying, well, what about Canada? Universal health care at half the price. They pay half the the price that we do, they cover everybody from cradle to grave. They have better outcomes. They have uh, no huge computerized fraudulent billing systems where you can't even figure out what you're being billed. Well, it's, it's even better than that. I once wrote an article, which I think is up on singlepayeraction.org, called 25 Ways Life is Better in Canada Because They Have Universal Health Insurance and We Don't. I mean, Canadians never figure out whether they want to move from one job to another, depending on insurance, whether the job has insurance or not. When you go to a hospital in Canada, the first question they ask is, what's your problem? What's your health problem? In the U.S. is, where's your insurance? And so you have the solution north of the border here. They don't talk about it. The New York Times now has a series of investigations into billing frauds. People get huge bills for things that should be one-tenth of the price. And they keep exposing one hospital or one medical practice after another. They never mention criminal prosecution. They never mention why isn't the Department of Health and Human Services doing something about it? Why aren't there congressional hearings? Why do we even need these kinds of bills if we had universal health care? In Canada, they almost never see a bill. They have a orthopedic operation, rehabilitation. Uh, I had a friend the other day went through all that, and I said, you see a bill? He said, well, yeah, I got a bill. I paid $42 for an ambulance. I said, $42? I said, I know somebody in Berkeley who paid $3,000 to go four miles in the middle of the night in an ambulance. We have to wake up here and ask ourselves, since we own the greatest public wealth, the people, the public lands, the public airways, trillions of dollars of government R&D that built all the industries uh, that we talk about in this country, from Silicon Valley to aerospace, a lot of the pharmaceutical industry, you name it, came out of R&D that the capitalists didn't want to invest in. And trillions of dollars of mutual funds and pension funds own two-thirds of the New York Stock Exchange shares. What are we waiting for? They're all controlled by corporations, but we still hold the ownership. We can throw off our shackles. What are we waiting for? We need a 1,000 lecturers to go all over the country the way they did in 1887, 88, and started the populist progressive movement, farmhouse to farmhouse, town to town. Elected governors and senators almost took over the White House. They had no telephone. 
no cars, no internet, nothing. Just their legs, their heart, and their minds. What are we waiting for? You're listening to Ralph Nader. What are we waiting for? This is Independent Alternative Radio. You can get CDs of this program and the Noam Chomsky book, Requiem for the American Dream, by calling us at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that's 1-800-444-1977. Our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. Printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program are free of charge. 1-800-444-1977. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the power and influence of uh, big tech. That is to say, Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, Facebook, and Google. Are you advocating a kinder, gentler capitalism with some regulation or a fundamental overhaul of the system? Well, they they have usurped what we thought was a modest democratic society. I mean, you're talking about a hijack of America here. You're talking about Apple Corporation that builds its phones and computers in China where the pressure's on the workers and the pay is so low that their Chinese contractor has nets to catch people when they are are jumping out the window committing suicide. And then they come to this country with these phones, they don't pay any tariffs, and they gouge the heck out of people. Look at the price of these phones. Look at the price of these computers. Why do I think they're so high? Because Apple doesn't know what to do with its tens of billions of dollars other than to buy back its own stock, which doesn't create any jobs, doesn't increase wages, doesn't bolster the pension plan, doesn't do research and development, doesn't clean up the recycling of their old uh, phones and computers. So almost a year ago, in January, they announced a $90 billion buyback, just in one year, $90 billion buyback, one company to increase the metrics for their executive compensation. So you have these new corporations that have enormous pricing power. They don't get challenged by any trust authorities except in Europe. I don't know why Washington didn't look to Europe. We started the antitrust laws over 130 years ago, and Europe's been fining them billions here and billions there, Apple and Google and, and others. And uh, we're just starting to stir the antitrust energy in the Federal Commission and Justice Department. But it's a long way from really materializing. They've turned consumers into serfs. This is the the road to corporate serfdom. Look at the power Facebook has. Uh, There's no number two anymore. You know, there's no Avis to the Hertz. Apple is dominant, Facebook is dominant, Google is dominant in their field, Amazon is dominant, and... Uh, Microsoft. And Microsoft, in its own way, uh, own area, is dominant. And now there are, uh, you know, there are trillions of dollars of valuation, and they don't really have that many workers, you know, given the size of the corporations, and... There seems to be no countervailing force from any other place in the Western world. They they dominate in Europe. But what's really uh, worse about it is and they're, they're getting into people's minds. Uh, they're turning people's minds, uh, the children. Uh, just think of that. They, they, they go to sleep with their cell phone. They wake up with their cell phone. They call mom and dad in the kitchen and say they don't want something for breakfast that they think they're going to get. They want sugar buns or something. Uh, the whole idea of conversation has, has been so degraded within the family because of these cell phones that absorb the time, the minds, the feelings, the emotions. And now... Zuckerberg wants to throw these kids into the metaverse, wants them to come home, put the goggles on, and and see how they climb Mount Everest. So we're not 
analyzing what's happening to us. We're not analyzing raw power. It all comes down to power, greed, money. These corporations are stealing the consumers like you cannot believe. Just in the area of billing fraud in the healthcare business, according to the expert at Harvard, Malcolm Sparrow, who estimated the most conservative theft is $360 billion this year. That's half the military budget, $360 billion. In other words, 10% of all expenditures, and he said that's really too conservative, it goes down the drain because of billing fraud. You know, procedures built for but not rendered, manipulation of Medicare codes in the process of taking over Medicare by health insurance companies. And that's just one industry. So how do you wake up people to their own potential? How do you give them a sense of power? You start by telling them what their assets are, what they own. They own the greatest wealth. The, the few own the greatest private wealth, the 1%. But the public wealth that I just enumerated is far, far uh, more robust and fundamental. It's not paper wealth. It's not derivatives or options. It's public lands. It's the, the scientific and technology funded by Washington that built all these companies with nothing in return for the taxpayer. It's the control of the commons by corporations, but we still own the commons. We have to give people a sense of confidence. Who has the votes? The people. 1,500 corporations control majority members of Congress. How many votes do they have? Oh, it's the money. They have so much money on TV, ads, really. If voters were informed, all those TV ads would be blather. They wouldn't have any effect whatsoever. But if voters don't use their homework time about the candidates, their record, not their rhetoric, and open up the political channels to independent and third, world, third parties to give voters more voices and choices and push the other two parties, as third parties did in the 19th century, like the Liberty Party against slavery and the women's right to vote parties and the labor farmer parties. We're being manipulated by wordsmiths, and we've got to shake ourselves at the level where people live, work, and raise their families. Then the abstract ideologies of pitting people against each other that the parties are so good at and the corporations are so good at divide and rule begin to dissipate because at, at the area of where people live, work, and raise their family, they're confronting very similar perils, very similar deprivations, very similar frauds, very similar needs and necessities, very similar hopes, regardless of whether they're conservative or liberal families. And then the other thing is a, a laser focus on Congress. And that's what's missing. Congress is the major instrument to turn this country around. The major instrument to make corporations our servants, not our masters. The major instruments to uplift the working class, to abolish poverty. I mean, Western countries abolished our type of poverty years ago, decades ago. And they were devastated in World War II. How'd they do it? They did it by strong unions. They did it by strong cooperatives. They did it by universal health insurance. They did it by good pensions. They did it by good public services like mass transit and so on. It's not rocket science. It's called democracy. And we who won World War II, we slipped back into a corporatist society that basically is trying to commercialize every sector of American life. They're strategically planning our tax system, our food system, our land system, our political election system, our public budget system, our military weapons system, commercializing childhood, genetically engineering, taking over genetic inheritance, technology, Monsanto, on and on. And we're letting it happen. And, I mean, it's so against fundamental American traditions, fundamental sense of patriotism. Where is the patriotism of these big U.S. corporations that rose to power on the backs of American workers and taxpayers who bailed them out when they got in trouble 
and the uh, U.S. Marines who saved them when they got in trouble abroad. They have no patriotism. It's all about everything being for sale. If you commercialize everything, commodify family functions, commodify everything, then it becomes everything is for sale. When everything's for sale in the society, guess who wins? The institutions with the most money, the corporations, the rich, the powerful. We're approaching in the coming months, uh, we'll probably pass a million deaths from the coronavirus pandemic. But this pandemic will at some point, not if not disappear, at least subside. What steps must be taken now to prevent future pandemics? First, we have to invest into, in the public health system. We have to produce domestically all the protective equipment. We have to shore up the state departments of health and relieve them of the commercial pressure that comes on them not to do the right thing. I mean, think of what we've invested in death-dealing weaponry compared to what we've invested in life-preserving health systems. A new report just came out, I think, from WHO-affiliated group saying that the world is dangerously unprepared for the next pandemic. No kidding. Well, one way we can prepare for the next pandemic is to make sure we produce our own medicines here in the United States. There's no production of penicillin anywhere in the United States. Antibiotics are produced in China. 65% of the active materials in our pharmaceuticals are imported. Most of the major drugs are imported because the big pharma makes more money that way in low-paid Chinese and Indian labs, which are not properly inspected by a budget-strapped Food and Drug Administration. They don't have many inspectors over there. Talk about the national security issue. We don't produce our own medicines, the wealthiest country in the world. Uh, The other thing is early alerts. When we see something occurring in a foreign country, we have to have the capability internationally through treaties and international collaboration to get right on it quickly before it spreads and have treaties where there's no obstruction to getting the information before it spreads around the world. And where would the United States be without the uh, immigrant labor that staffs uh, many, many hospitals and clinics? I'm thinking of um, Arabs and uh, South Asians, Indians, Pakistanis, Bangladeshis, uh, Filipino nurses, uh, nurses from uh, Kerala. We'd be in some pickle without them. Of course. I mean, uh, in Manhattan, half the doctors are immigrants. We are brain-draining the world. We go around the world saying, hey, you, you guys, you've got to get educated and train your own specialists. Uh, that's the way you have economic development. And then we brain-drain nurses from the Philippines. We brain-drain doctors from the Middle East and South Asia. We brain-drain technologists and, and scientists with H-1B visas. And in the meantime, uh, the politicians beat up on immigrants. The paradoxes and hypocrisies are almost insuperable to exaggerate. The, The important thing here is that the conflict of centuries between commercial values and civic values, civic values are freedom, justice, tolerance, equal opportunity, protection of posterity, and every major religion going back thousands of years, has warned its adherents not to give too much power to the merchant class. About the well-known technique divide and rule, uh, there's a joke, a sad joke going around. Let me tell it to you. There's this uh, public union employee, and then there's a Trump supporter and a bank CEO, and they're all sitting at a table with a plate of a dozen cookies in front of them. The CEO takes 11 of those cookies, turns to the Trump supporter and says, hey, watch out for that union guy. He wants your cookie. (laughs) Well, I suppose uh, mordant satire is sometimes a relief outlet. It is true that the disparity in wealth is staggering. You have this kind of endless greed, infinite greed, 
the mark of commercialism run amok is enough is never enough. It's like the military weapons manufacturers. If you ask General Dynamic, well, you know, you got about 35 Trident subs uh, in, the, in the U.S. Navy. Each one of them can blow up with multiple nuclear warheads 200 cities in an hour and a half around the world, each one of them. Now, General Dynamics, do you think we need any more? Uh, we also have bombers with nuclear weapons and land-based nuclear missiles. So you go, you go to the CEO of General Dynamics, do you think we need any more? Oh, yeah, of course we need more. And we have some upgrades, too. And, of course, in Groton, Connecticut, that's where they produce the nuclear subs. And you think the unions there or the workers there are going to object? That's their meal ticket. There's no transition economic policy the way that was being proposed in the 1960s to say, okay, if workers lose their jobs when we reduce our arms industry, we have to have other jobs like producing mass transit vehicles or other infrastructure. There isn't even that in the offing. And so you have a congressman from Connecticut who is very progressive, but he won't raise a single objection to the next Trident subcontract that passes through Congress. That's the way the country's held hostage. They have no alternative civic economy and public works economy to fund because the Pentagon is draining billions away from the necessities, public necessities of our domestic economy, and the corporations are paying less taxes, and the wealthy are paying less taxes, so there's less revenue to rebuild our country domestically. Now, what do we do about it? Well, who can do something about it? Congress. Who do they want support from more than money? Our votes. Can we organize our votes? Don't we have conservative liberal support for dozens of things that conservative liberal families want? Once we get on the ground where people live, work, and raise their kids, of course. But if we allow ourselves to divide and rule, we will never develop the political movement that is unbeatable, which is a slice of both conservative and Republican voters totaling about 70% of the total voters. That's enough to be an unstoppable political force on Capitol Hill and start this great fulcrum called Congress to turn around the executive judicial branches and the priorities that are so inverted in this country. Inequality continues to uh, skyrocket. Uh, there's a public radio program. It's called Marketplace. It might be called the Capitalism Report. Uh, recently, it said, quote, workers are flexing their bargaining power. Clearly, there's a stirring of activity on the shop floor and the assembly line, a revival of sorts of the labor movement. There have been a series of successful actions at Starbucks, Nabisco's, Kellogg's, John Deere, New York City, taxi drivers. So what's, what's happening? Workers are organizing, it seems, and are fighting back. Well, this is a window of opportunity because of the pandemic and other forces that uh, intertwined, uh, there's a shortage of workers in some key sectors. And uh, also uh, workers who left their jobs during the pandemic are not all going back. So that McDonald's is offering little bonuses to get workers, raising their wage a little bit. And so you have these organizing efforts you mentioned uh, around the country, but they're minuscule. They're promising, but they're tiptoe. They're minuscule. I mean, if you have two, three Starbucks organizing, you know how many thousands of Starbucks stores that are not organizing? 9,000. Right. So it's it's a good start. I would hope the FLCIO and the other unions would put more organizers on the ground because without organizers on the ground, you're not going to deal with these retail stores. They're very labor-intensive. Walmart, McDonald's, Burger King, uh, Amazon – they need a lot of organizers on the ground to bolster the brave workers who are inside these premises. And uh, they need lawyers to uh, protect them, too, from being illegally fired for trying to peacefully organize uh, their place of work. So while this is an open window, 
I don't know how long it's going to last. It may not last very long with the next wave of automation hitting the workplace, not to mention a possible recession. Uh, but let's not make too much of it. Let's say it is a tiny toehold, and we now have to get Congress to pass the worker protection law that the House of Representatives has already passed to make it easier to organize unions. It's now stuck in the Senate for all the obvious Senate graveyard procedural reasons. However, why aren't the Democrats having highly publicized hearings? They control the committees in the Senate. They don't have to go through a filibuster. It's just uh, they just pass these good bills in the House, send them to the Senate, and they forget about it. That's what's going on for 25 years. And so I want to see more aggressive media by the organized labor movement. They should let workers know all over the country this is a moment in time. And if you don't get a foothold, you're going to slip back because now they're going to start automating retail stores like McDonald's and uh, other stores, automating the cash register worker. Is the post office on the road to privatization? We're seeing mail not being delivered or or being delivered very late. Workers uh, suffering from the coronavirus can't, can't attend their jobs. Uh, people get frustrated. They stand online. I stand online at the post office, you know, waiting uh, because there's not enough staff. Now, Tell me if I'm wrong about this, Ralph, that unlike any other federal agency, it's only the post office that requires forward funding. Can you talk about that? Yes. Well, first of all, most people don't know that the post office is not supported by taxpayers, unlike giant corporations that are propped up by taxpayers every day, handouts, giveaways, subsidies, bailouts, etc., Second, there's huge public support for the post office. You saw that in the early days of the pandemic. Uh, you saw that when Trump tried to use the post office to obstruct absentee ballot delivery, etc. cetera. Uh, I think it startled the Republicans. Uh, rural America desperately needs p- the post office to stay where they are. It's a place where they connect with federal services, where they congregate, talk with one another in an impersonal age. The post office is very critical. The third is it's easy to turn the post office around. Number one, as you say, you don't prepay for 50 years health insurance, which is something Congress put on the back of the uh, post office around 2006, which put it into debt uh, five, six billion dollars a year. Uh, There's no business, no agency that prepays that kind of health insurance. Uh, so that changes, that'll help the post office. Next would be to let the post office deliver what the private delivery companies are able to deliver. For example, Congress has prohibited the post office from delivering beer and wine. Why? Because the other companies like FedEx and United Parcel, they want to have that business for themselves. The other thing is uh, developing very nicely now. There are four pilot projects, mostly in the East Coast, for Postal Saving Bank. There used to be a Postal Saving Bank till 1968, uh, where for decades people would take their savings, they cash their checks, you know, simple financial transactions. Well, there are 20, 30 million people in this country who are unbanked because the banks don't want them. They can't make money off them. And the poor people can't afford the monthly charges. So there's a whole revenue source there. Remember, there are 32,000 post offices and branches. Uh, Starbucks doesn't come close. Walmart doesn't come close. And in a national emergency where you have to deliver certain medicines and emergency equipment, the national postal system is an asset for our own national security. And that ought to be highlighted more. And then the the proposal I had, which is to have the Postal Service uh, deliver two, three times a year uh, to 130 million residences, an invitation for people to join their own postal residential action group so they can represent residential users instead of having to go down rain sleet to the the road to get your uh, letters now. 
you return to home delivery. There are a lot of things that residential users need uh, to roll back to the time when the postal service was really a tremendous service. And it's just a million people joined up. You'd have full-time champions at the local and national level against the Postal Board of Governors, which traditionally the Democrats and Republicans have loaded up with corporate executives. Can you imagine? Corporate executives are on the Postal Board of Governors. Well, now the Democrats finally have the majority uh, on the Postal Board of Governors. So why is Mr. DeJoy Trump's selection as Postmaster General still there? Why is Trump's uh, appointment to the head of IRS still there? Why is Trump's appointment to the chair of the Federal Reserve still there under a Democratic administration? You think Trump would have wasted any time replacing these people or easing them out? The weakness of the Democratic Party is the great Achilles heel of what's left of our republic. The apparatchiks in the party wallowing in their own smug sinecure, are not waking up and looking themselves in the mirror and getting ready for 2022. In fact, they talk more about being defeated in 2022 than about strategies to get the vote out and trounce the Republicans. I'd like you to talk about what uh, Nobel laureate and Archbishop Desmond Tutu of South Africa, who died recently, once said, If you are neutral in situations of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. And then we have our own historian, Howard Zinn, who used to say, you can't be neutral on a moving train. So talk about those ideas of being neutral. Well, one of the great men of our century passed away, Desmond Tutu. He was so unique. He not only was full of joy and compassion and friendship personally, he never saw an injustice he didn't like. You know, there are people who fight injustice, but they have their favorites. Like uh, they're against apartheid in South Africa, but it's okay for the Israelis to oppress the Palestinian people, occupy them. He never had that kind of double standard. He criticized even the, the National African Congress, as well as going over against empire, the devastations wrecked on Iraq and Afghanistan and Yemen. A great man. And Howard Zinn's comment, you can't be neutral on a moving train? Uh, Of course. I mean, that's so elementary. I had an anthropology professor at Princeton once, and he, he gave this story. A blind man was walking toward a cliff with the ocean below, and someone was sitting on his balcony in his little house a hundred yards from the cliff and the blind man was heading for certain destruction but the man on the porch said I don't want to take sides I I want to be objective thanks very much Ralph okay thank you David you were just listening to Ralph Nader what are we waiting for I talked with him in late December Ralph Nader, a legendary figure, has spent a lifetime fighting on behalf of ordinary people. The Atlantic magazine named him one of the hundred most influential figures in U.S. history. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and in our 36th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature such progressive voices as Chris Hedges, Arundhati Roy, and Angela Davis. We also have a series of programs with Ralph Nader. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for CDs of today's program, Ralph Nader, What Are We Waiting For?, and for the Noam Chomsky classic book, Requiem for the American Dream, just call us at 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order online on our website, alternativeradio.org. 
That's alternativeradio.org. Printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program are free of charge. Just call us, 1-800-444-1977. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. We go out with the Pointer Sisters. Yes, we can. and on the traditional territories of the Treaty 7 region, broadcasting from the University of Calgary campus station, you are listening to CJSW 90.9 FM. Shut the